Hello, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. Economic issues are all around us, from taxes and inequality to jobs and productivity. Thomas Piketty's book on wealth is a bestseller. What does it all mean? To find out, I decided to ask a real economist. In this podcast, Gary Burtless, a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings, offers his expertise on how we can understand these issues. Well, Gary, welcome to the podcast today. We hear and read about a lot of economics issues in the media, from politicians, in the general discussion, in the public. Is there something in the public discussion that you think people are just getting wrong most of the time? Well, uh, there are three things that I can think of uh, that really bother me. The first is that the stimulus program that was instituted actually first under President Bush and then expanded greatly under President Obama, that the funds just were wasted, uh, that they didn't work, uh, the program didn't succeed in rescuing the economy. That just strikes me as dead wrong. Another is that one of the crucial elements of the anti-recession program, which was the rescue of the financial system, protected the malefactors of great wealth at the expense of ordinary citizens, taxpayers. And finally, I also am very uh, concerned about the impression that people have that all of the recent progress in the American economy, let's say all the gains since the end of the last century, have been conferred on those who have great wealth and ordinary citizens have not shared in the prosperity. So those are three things that really bother me about what I take to be widespread opinions in the United States. You've you've written recently that... um... The facts about income growth and income inequality, quote, may surprise you. Why is that? Well, this is the third uh, issue that I mentioned, this impression that all of the gains, either in the last uh, 10 years or the last 40 years, have gone to people with great wealth and people who have middle-level incomes have seen no improvement in their living standards at all. I think all of the statistics that provide information about people's general living standards contradict that. Uh, Incomes have risen uh, 30 or 40 percent in the middle of the U.S. income distribution. It's not well captured by uh, measures just of people's pre-tax money incomes. You need to have a more inclusive measure that takes account of the lower tax burdens that people face in 2014 compared with the late 1970s. You have to take into account all of the non-cash contributions to family well-being that people have nowadays. But nonetheless, under any uh, serious examination of the incomes coming into U.S. households, those in the middle have not fared as well as those at the top, but they certainly have seen income progress over the period. It is certainly true that over short periods of time, say in the years 2010 and 2011, an outsized share of the gains in the return to prosperity went to high-income people, and that's partly because the government was withdrawing some of the stimulus 
some of the tax reductions that were going to middle-income people and the high-income people in the United States saw a rebound in their fortunes as the markets in the United States recovered. But even so, even taking account of those gains in the early part of the recovery, those gains did not offset the losses that high-income people sustained in the recession, which really caused sizable uh, losses in wealth and income for those folks. That, that certainly runs counter to the popular, if not populist, narrative that the rich are getting richer and everybody else is not. And we heard all about the 99% the versus the 1%. Well, I think that the facts about the top 1% are these. The market incomes that they receive, their wages, the incomes they get from the assets they own, stocks, bonds, property, and so on, have indeed gone up faster than those going to people in the middle. There's no doubt about it. That pattern has been in evidence since the late 1970s. I have written about this phenomenon since the 1980s when this first uh, this trend was first apparent to people who paid attention to the statistics. But that does not follow that people in the middle of the income distribution or at the bottom of the distribution have not shared in the income gains at all. They have. Uh, the tax code has been rewritten so that people at the bottom of the income distribution now receive more tax refunds from the government than they pay in income taxes and payroll taxes. Uh, Middle-income families face lighter income tax liabilities now than they did uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and a lot of fringe benefits that don't get counted as part of our cash incomes nonetheless do uh, help us pay our medical bills, help us pay for our retirement and so forth. And a lot of those uh, benefits, when we take them into account, have gone to middle and lower income families, not especially to the high income families. And into the middle of this uh, conversation, if you will, this national debate maybe about inequality and income distribution comes Thomas uh, Piketty's book on the distribution of wealth. It's called Capital in the 21st Century. It's immensely popular, at least in the United States, at least on the East Coast, at least in the D.C. area. Uh, but it's also an Amazon bestseller. Uh, why do you think it's so popular? Well, one thing is that, uh, speaking as a person who's read it, I, I think it's a very well-written book. It doesn't contain as many surprises to someone like me because I was already aware of this research uh, and the important breakthroughs in measuring top-end incomes that uh, Piketty is responsible for, along with his colleague uh, Emmanuel Sayas. So a lot of this research was already familiar to me. What is new is a theory that tries to account over very long periods of time why uh, income generated by wealth, by capital, will become a more important uh, fraction of uh, national income. And therefore, because capital income is much more unequally distributed, that will tend to push up uh, income inequality. But even here, I think I've read a lot of reviews. I've read a lot of commentary. And the commentary seems to miss the fact that this book is about people's market incomes, their pre-tax market incomes. Uh, their pre-tax market cash incomes, 
and therefore disregards the fringe benefits that workers receive, which tend not to be included in money income, and disregards all of the increase in government social benefits that we've introduced into the economy over the last uh, 75, 80 years. A common claim about this book is that it shows that income inequality in right now is about the same as it was in the late 1920s. That is an absurd claim, except with respect to market income. The after-tax income, the after-tax income, including Social Security benefits, unemployment benefits, workers' compensation benefits, food stamp benefits, the whole panoply of what we do to protect our middle and lower income citizens is much more equally distributed now than it was in the late 1920s. Government social benefits constitute about 17 or 18 percent of personal income in the United States, and to pretend that that doesn't exist seems to me a little crazy. This is what our society has tried to do to protect old people from poverty in old age, to protect the disabled against falling into poverty even before they reach old age, and to protect the indigent population from having such terrible living standards as poor people experienced in the 1920s. To disregard these enormous efforts to equalize the opportunities and incomes of Americans strikes me as really strange. This is not uh, Professor Piketty's claim, but this is how his research, which emphasizes a particular measure of income, has been interpreted wrongly, in my view, by many people who write about the book and write about his conclusions. So there's a problem with how we measure income, and I've heard you say that a couple of times. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult problem. Uh, if all of us lived uh, as hunter-gatherers, we could uh, detect how much we're receiving every day in terms of the caloric intake that our hunting and gathering yields for us. And we could talk about how equal the caloric intake is of people in our tribe. But as societies get more complicated, not only do we depend on what we earn through our own efforts, we also depend on the part of our income that is set aside in taxes and stored up so that we can consume it in our old age or when we get indigent, we can't disregard those income flows that our society now provides to us uh, outside of the market. Social security benefits, unemployment benefits are provided outside of the market. They are a creation of the government to try to protect people against recessions, against uh, uh, the inability to earn incomes in old age, the inability to afford a doctor uh, or hospital, uh, and to pretend that those institutions, which did not exist at all before the Great Depression in our country, have not become vastly more important over time, it strikes me as really strange. But going from there to the Affordable Care Act, you and Henry Aaron have written a, a paper recently where you wrote that the Affordable Care Act may do more to change the income distribution than any other recently enacted law. And you talked a lot about uh, these measures of income. Can you uh, describe that? We think that it may do a lot to change the distribution of income because it will bring so many people health insurance, which previously had been unaffordable to them. That makes a meaningful difference to families where there's a sick person, injured person, 
person who needs to see a doctor needs to receive health care because health care is now extremely expensive. And for people with limited incomes, it is often impossible to obtain without the help of an insurance policy. Uh, by trying to expand health coverage in the United States to a broader group of people, uh, more young people who have limited incomes, more poor people who cannot uh, get uh, Medicaid under the old laws, we're really going to improve the well-being of lots of people. There's plenty of evidence that health insurance makes a non-trivial difference to people's access to medical care and, the, and their ultimate health outcomes. But coverage under a health insurance plan does not count as income in most standard measures of income available to us. The most common widely cited statistics about the distribution of income in the United States comes from the Census Bureau's definition of money income, which is pre-tax cash income. It includes uh, Social Security and wages and uh, interest and dividends and so forth, but it does not include the value of the health protection we get either because our employer provides it to us or because the government offers a health insurance plan that covers us. So. That has made a big difference in the well-being of Americans, especially indigent and older Americans over the last 50 years, uh, improving their health, improving their access to medical care. But it doesn't get counted in the standard income statistics. In fact, you, you and Aaron wrote that the uh, census money income is blind to the major components of the Affordable Care Act. That's right. Uh, the only income distributional effect that is going to be uncovered in the money income statistics will be an indirect effect. Uh, and the indirect effect would happen this way. Suppose your employer has not offered health coverage and because of the penalties and the rules in the Affordable Care Act, it, your employer decides to offer health protection to its employees. Making that health insurance available to employees is going to cost the employer money. And if the employer wants to remain competitive, it has to offset the extra cost of providing a health plan for its workers through some kind of an adjustment in their other benefits, perhaps a reduction in their wages. And so by making inexpensive insurance available through the employer, we may be reducing the money wages of some people in the United States. And so those people will look like they're worse off. There's another case. And the other case is suppose you're a worker who currently is covered by a health plan, but one that's quite expensive to you. And so now, as a result of the availability of either Medicaid insurance or insurance that's available through a state exchange, you decide to go get public health insurance instead of uh, relying on your employer's insurance. In that case, your employer is going to save money because the employer will not have to pay for your health benefits. The freed up money might be used to give you a salary increase. So in some cases, money income might go up. In other cases, money income might go down. But those effects are going to be very minor relative to the effects of broader access to health insurance. Those are going to have a bigger effect on people's well-being than will be captured by the small changes in money income that Henry and I expect to flow out of the Affordable Care Act. Well, I know it's a, uh, it's a complicated paper, uh, but can you 
generally summarize kind of what the overall effect is across the income distribution of the Affordable Care Act? If people's incomes go up, down? People in the bottom one-fifth, one-quarter, maybe even the bottom one-third of the income distribution should see their well-being improve. They will have broader access to inexpensive health insurance than currently many of them have. People who aren't Avail, uh, eligible for Medicaid in, in the states that have uh, decided to expand Medicaid eligibility. Some people in those states will now get free health insurance under Medicaid. Uh, some people in the bottom of the income distribution who don't currently have access to employer-provided health insurance will now, with government subsidies, be able to buy a health insurance plan through a state exchange. So down at the bottom of the distribution, there'll be many more people who are gainers. As you move up the distribution, uh, there'll be losers. uh, And those losers will include people with incomes over, let's say, $160,000 a year who may have to pay higher premiums for their part of their Medicare insurance and people with incomes above $200,000 or $250,000 a year who see that they have to pay higher Medicare taxes and, and somewhat higher investment earnings taxes. Finally, uh, in order to make the plan cost neutral in the long run, Congress and the administration decided to strip out some of the subsidies that go to the one-fifth or so of people insured under Medicare who don't have the standard Medicare insurance plan, but instead are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. They will receive less subsidies for enrolling in those plans, and those subsidies are going to, the subsidy reductions will either result in somewhat higher premiums or alternatively a a narrower menu of benefits under those Medicare Advantage plans. So those are the winners and the losers. The people who lose a small amount probably outnumber those who gain, but those who gain will gain a sizable amount. And in particular, they'll gain a lot if there's a very sick member of the family who has been unable up to now to get an affordable health plan. Let's switch to another area of economics that you have written an enormous amount on, and that's jobs and productivity. Um, You wrote that before the 1990s, the United States was once viewed as the employment miracle. Why was it viewed that way? What is that? And are we still the employment miracle? I doubt it. Starting in the mid-1970s, a lot of uh, the rich economies of the world, Japan, Western Europe, Australia, Canada, the United States, started to run into real headwinds. Growth slowed. Initially, everyone attributed to this to the spike in oil prices and energy prices, but then uh, growth has remained slow in in most of these countries since the mid-1970s. Along with slower growth came sharply higher rates of unemployment. In the United States, those spikes in the unemployment rate in the middle of the 1970s, at the beginning of the 1980s, turned out to be just temporary. There was there has been no trend in the long-term uh, unemployment rate of the United States. Generally speaking, the unemployment rate has always fallen down to five, five and a half, maybe six percent when we had a very young population. And that made the United States stand out relative to many other rich countries, which saw 
trend increases in their unemployment rate that have not ever been reversed. They, Sweden has a considerably higher unemployment rate today than it ever had in the 1970s. The same is true of a lot of Western European countries, Germany, France, Italy, Spain. Uh, so relative to the experience of many other rich countries, the United States looked like a miracle in that employment grew often explosively fast, as it did in the 1980s, uh, or at least it kept on growing. We recovered from recessions. The unemployment rate would fall. And in general, employers seem to create millions of jobs every year, uh, keeping uh, people employed, even if we weren't always satisfied with the wage incomes we earned. Since uh, the 2001 uh, recession, the United States has not fared as well. Listeners may recall that uh, that was a jobless recovery. It was a long time before we made up the employment losses that we sustained in the 2001 recession, and it might have been 2003, 2004 before we were level. This time around, it's taken even longer. Uh, we're, we now have about the same number of payroll jobs as we did when the Great Recession began at the end of 2007. So it has taken us 76 months <laughs> since the onset of a recession to recover the employment that we had in the last economic expansion. There has been no post-war episode in which employment gains have been this slow to materialize. One problem that we see is many people are discouraged by their prospects of getting a job. The labor force participation rate has fallen considerably compared with where it was at the end of the last economic expansion. You said it's the lowest uh, for prime working age men. U.S. labor force participation is the lowest of 17 OECD countries. That means that in comparison to other rich countries, Men who are between 25 and 54 years old have low rates of labor force participation. You're a labor force participant. If you hold a job or if you don't hold a job, you're looking for one and have done something to find one in the last four weeks. Well, the United States men used to have reasonably high employment rate and labor force participation rate. At least we were in the middle of the pack there, uh, and we just have fallen until now we're the lowest among rich countries. Among women, we used to rank very high among prime age workers in terms of participation rates. And again, women's rank in the international league tables has slipped, and so now they're below average. The part of the age distribution where Americans tend to still have fairly high or at least average levels of work effort are when we're young, under 25, and when we're, when we're old, past age 60. Uh, we still look like we work hard and long in those age groups. But among prime age workers, we really have slipped a long way. Why do you think that is? Compared with other countries, the wages that we make available for the least skilled workers are quite low. And this may discourage a lot of people who have limited education who have health conditions that make work unpleasant, uh, it may discourage them from uh, looking for work uh, or looking a long time for work once they lose a job. They might give up earlier than people do in other countries because once they get a job, 
the people who hold poorly paid jobs in the United States are paid relatively little. We still have high participation rates among our well-educated people. Uh, there's no doubt. But amongst those who have less education, who have less skills, uh, the fact that the wages they will earn if they do get employed are so low, and in the case of men have trended lower over time, uh, discourages a lot of people from remaining in the workforce. They support themselves through public transfer benefits or more likely in many cases uh, from the earnings of some other family member who's better situated to earn better pay. Now, in terms of uh, workers over age 60 who, who look like they're working harder, you've done some research on retirement trends globally, showing that there's greater labor force participation amongst uh, older workers. For many decades, probably for more than a century, Americans who were full career workers tended to retire at younger and younger ages. It's hard to believe now, but in 1910 census, men who were 72 years old were more likely to be in the labor force either working or looking for a job than they were to be outside the job market. In other words, more than half of 72-year-old men <laughs> were gainfully employed or looking for a job. Uh, well, that percentage fell very sharply over time. Uh, by uh, the middle of the 1980s, in the case of men, probably the uh, age at which half of people were in the labor force and half were not had dipped to maybe age 62, so 10 years younger. Surprisingly to many people, that trend toward earlier retirement reversed at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 1980s, and people in the United States who had a full career, whether men or women, started to retire later and later. Surprisingly, that trend persisted even during the Great Recession and in the recovery from the Great Recession. When many other age groups in the U.S. population were withdrawing from the workforce, were saw their labor force participation rates fall, among the population past 60, participation rates have gone up and the age at which people leave the workforce is rising. Uh, one explanation that you often hear advance is, well, uh, the stock market is doing so terribly, people's houses are worth so little, they just have to keep on working in order to support themselves. I don't think that's right because this trend began in the early 1990s for men and the middle 1980s for women. Over that period of time, sometimes the stock market has done well, sometimes house prices have done well, but sometimes house prices have done miserably, sometimes the stock market has done miserably. And this trend toward later retirement has persisted across all of those episodes. So my suspicion is there's something quite deep-seated going on here, and my belief is it is, is that people foresee that they are going to live a long time. They look at the Social Security and Medicare benefits that the government will provide to them when they reach retirement age, and they say, that's not going to give me a good enough standard of living so that I can enjoy myself over uh, a long retirement period. And the people who are better educated than average are the ones who tend to be retiring uh, later. Uh, that the, the trend is strongest among the better educated older workers. 
And are these older workers somehow crowding out job opportunities for younger workers? Well, in a job market like 1999, uh, when uh, you could see help wanted signs everywhere in the United States, shopping malls, uh, Main Street, uh, factory uh, gates, uh, no. Uh, the fact that older people wanted to retire later, hang on to their jobs longer, or if they retired from a career job, find another part-time job to supplement their uh, retirement income did not have any adverse consequences on the employment chances of younger people. There, Then there were plenty of jobs to go around. But I have to say, since the onset of the Great Recession, especially since the recovery from the Great Recession, I think that older workers who hang on to their jobs are uh, reducing the number of job opportunities available to younger workers. It's a real problem. My guess is that to have full employment in the United States, the United States needs to have about 6 million more jobs than it currently has. And at the current rate, it's going to take a long time to generate an additional 6 million jobs. And as long as there's a shortage of jobs compared with the number of job seekers, then people who hang on to their jobs longer than earlier generations are, in fact, subtracting the number of job openings that are available to younger people to fill. I hope that uh, this pattern comes to an end, that we reach full employment, at which point there is not this trade-off between the employment of the young and the employment of the old. But until that time occurs, yes, I do think people past 60 who want to retire later than their fathers did are probably harming the employment chances of young people to some degree. You say six million jobs uh, every month. Uh, I know you look at in great detail the Bureau of Labor Statistics employment reports. The last one showed, I think, less than 300,000 jobs in the private sector created. I mean, we're a long way away from six million. Well, the most recent number, the one for April, was indeed an encouraging one. It was, I think, the third highest uh, monthly employment gain we've seen in the recovery. Uh, and it did uh, erase a lot of people's doubts about the weak job gains that we saw in December and in January of uh, this past winter. Nonetheless, we need a lot of months in which we gain 300,000 payroll jobs to erase this big deficit that we currently face. All during the Great Recession and the recovery from the Great Recession, We've been adding about 75 to 90,000 people a month who are in that working age population that we would expect to hold a job. We need to expand the number of people employed by 75 to 90,000 a month just to keep the unemployment from rising. Well, we beat that very handily over the last three years. There's no doubt about it, especially the private payrolls which have grown about a little bit less than 200,000 a month, uh, have been fast enough to more than keep up with the growth of the working age population. But the fact is that at the end of the Great Recession, you know, when before the unemployment rate started to turn down, we had built up a shortfall of on the, on the uh, about eight or eight and a half million jobs. That's how many jobs we needed because we'd lost so many jobs in the Great Recession. So we're making progress toward 
eliminating our excess unemployment, but the progress has been quite slow given that a daunting number of jobs that were needed to bring us back to full employment when the recession ended. Let me have one more question before we move to our, our wrap-up question. And it's, a, it's something my friend and I were talking about, so I have to try to get it in. I was making the case that um, American workers' productivity has increased over the past few decades, but wages have remained either stagnant or haven't increased as much, which I think results in kind of working harder for less. And he disputed that based on an assertion that, well, it's really technology that's driving uh, productivity gains. Uh, so which one of us is right or which one of us is least wrong? Productivity gains we have seen over the last uh, three decades or so have outstripped the gains in the money wages that uh, workers earn. Some of the discrepancy can be explained by the fact that wages constitute a smaller percentage of the total compensation that we earn. So if you compared hourly compensation rather than hourly wages, the difference would be smaller. But nonetheless, there would be a difference. Uh, productivity has increased faster than compensation per hour. For a while, one of the explanations was that the prices of the things that workers buy were going up faster than the prices of the goods and services that American workers produce. Think about the era when the price of oil was skyrocketing. Much of our oil, much of our energy is imported from other countries. Regardless of how fast our productivity is going up, we are forced to pay higher prices when we buy energy. We're only producing it's at one point, I think, uh, two-thirds of the energy that we were consuming. So we had to pay more. That would lower the value of our real wages. Uh, in more recent years, since uh, the early part of the last decade, uh, one other thing has been occurring, and that is that when you look at the pie created by what American businesses produce – how much value they add to all the inputs they have to buy, uh, that pie has been divided in a way that more of it is going to business owners and the people who lend funds to business owners and less of it is going to workers. So there has been a trend over the last 15 years toward wages not rising as fast as productivity because the productivity gains are being received by the people who own businesses more than by the people who work in those businesses. Uh, so I think that there have been different uh, factors that have been important at different uh, periods. From the end of the 1930s until about 1973 or so, I think it's fair to say that wages more or less kept up with productivity. Sometimes they were a little they grew a little faster, sometimes a little slower, but they certainly that pattern lasted a long time and we got used to that. But then these other factors have come into play over the last 40 years or so and uh compensation per hour has fallen short of growing as fast as productivity. Okay, well let's wrap up uh, by going back to the first question I asked you. Now not everybody out there can uh, spend time talking to an economist like yourself. So how can people be better consumers of economic data, economic information? Well, a lot of it just takes uh, real work because 
the statistics that are published often provide an incomplete picture of even the phenomenon that they're trying to describe. So uh, I'll, I'll offer a very simple example. In 1986, Congress passed a historical simplification of the income tax law. And it was widely expected by analysts, both the ones who designed the reform and, uh, and the people who opposed it but nonetheless tried to study what its effects was going to be. It was widely anticipated that this would lower the tax burdens of average American families uh, and increase the tax burdens on America's businesses, corporations. It didn't play out that way. But the thing that's interesting is that a couple of years later, people were asked, do you think this landmark change in the tax law increased, left unchanged, or reduced your tax burdens? And most Americans thought it raised their tax burdens, which was almost certainly incorrect. Their taxes had declined by design and, in, in fact, as a result of this law, the surprise to analysts was that instead of increasing burdens on America's businesses, uh, it lowered them because businesses discovered a way to evade paying some of the additional tax. So this, to experts, the surprise was how businesses managed to circumvent what was attempted as an increase on their tax burdens so that the overall change would only slightly reduce the government's tax burdens. But no one was surprised by the effects of uh, the tax changes on individual taxpayers. Individual taxpayers got a tax cut, and yet the great majority thought they faced a tax increase. Well, uh, I, I suspect that the reason people thought that was because a lot of the people who commented about on the law and made the biggest fuss in public were people who opposed it. Uh, and of course, it was easy to find instances in which people's taxes were increased. But that was not the general pattern. The general pattern was taxes went down. So one, one thing is you don't want to pay attention to the squeakiest wheel. Squeakiest wheel might be making an accurate description of the situation of one or two businesses, one or two taxpayers, but uh, you don't want to generalize that across everyone. And then also visit Brookings.edu to uh, read your excellent work. That's a, that's right. Yes, we have something. We have a center here called the Tax Policy Center, which is joint with the Urban Institute, which does tend to do this analysis in a much more neutral way, analytical way, and allows you to see uh, a more comprehensive picture of something like the tax law changes. Well, Gary, thank you for your time today. It's been an education for me, and I expect for my listeners as well. Thank, thank you. you. To find out more about economic studies, visit brookings.edu/es, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. <laughs>